Good morning. What a fitting song to sing in light of celebrating the Lord's Supper together, remembering his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and in uh, taking part in the Lord's Supper together. Just it really is with thankfulness that we come together, that we join together uh, every Sunday and Every time we as believers gather, whether it be throughout the week, whether it be in Bible studies, whether it be just to meet uh, just a couple of us together to encourage one another. Um, What should flow out of that time together is thankfulness for what the Lord has done and how he has worked in our lives. So again, what a fitting song to, uh, to transition into our time of looking at God's word and what he has to teach us. And to that end, we've been in our, in the book of Matthew, and we're going to continue in our study through the book of Matthew this morning is... You can open your Bibles to chapter 12 of Matthew. C.S. Lewis provided a litmus test for how one thinks of Jesus. And he provided three possible categories based upon Jesus' life and words, noting that these are really wholly distinct categories. They, they don't overlap. These are zero-sum categories. You choose one, you can't have another. And based on what Jesus has said and done, a person must accept that he is either a Lord, the Lord, a liar, or a lunatic. You may have heard this expression before. It's not possible to believe he's a good man if, he claims, if his claims of lordship and the Son of God and being the Son of God are knowingly false, because that would make him a liar. On the other hand, if he is not Lord but somehow fully believes that his claims are true, then that must make him a lunatic. He's crazy. That leaves the only other option, if we really believe he is good, is that he is, in fact, the Lord. These distinct categories help to illustrate really what we've seen in the past couple of weeks and what we'll look at this morning as it comes in even greater clarity is the wickedness of these religious leaders who are calling, who after calling Jesus a liar, after accusing him of being in league with Satan, likewise denying his claims of lordship, of being the son of God, they then turn around and they try to flatter him with words like teacher, master. There's no real recognition of his lordship. There's no submission in their hearts. It's a feigned respect meant to mask their destructive plots, as we've seen in previous verses. And thus, it's really little wonder that Jesus responds sharply to this hypocrisy, as we'll see this morning. But what about us, when we come to a passage like this? I think it's right to consider how often do our words and our lives functionally deny Christ's lordship, functionally deny that we are followers of Christ, Are we not at times guilty of a similar, not the same, but a similar form of hypocrisy? And while certainly not plotting to destroy Christ, yet we bring reproach upon him, reproach upon the church, while slowly destroying our own testimony. So as we observe Jesus' rebuke of these wicked religious leaders this morning, we really want to remind ourselves of the lordship of Jesus Christ, his great love for us, and in turn respond in love. Where necessary with repentance, that the the balm of forgiveness might be applied and that we might renew and be refreshed. As the psalmist David said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. As that 
love and obedience is renewed within us, that we would make much of our great God and Father, Jesus Christ. So read along with me in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three, nights, or three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. The opportunity we have to study your word, to look at it, to understand it, that we might know the mind of Christ. Father, pray that we would look at a text like this, and, and again, while it's so easy to see the condemnation, the rebuke, the response to these Pharisees and scribes that we would be asking where do we exhibit similar patterns where's their hypocrisy in us that we might root it out that we might uh, the love of Christ would shine in our hearts revealing those areas that we'd be quick to repent and to obey Father we thank you for your word how it teaches us how it instructs us how it rebukes us Father, we're reminded that faithful are the wounds of the friend, and there is no greater friend than Christ Jesus and his words to us. In your name, amen. The early church father Chrysostom noted concerning this passage and its setting, when they ought to be kneeling before him to admire and be amazed and give way, they refuse to cease from their wickedness. And note their words too, teeming with flattery and dissimulation. For they try to draw him out in their deceptive way. First they insult, then they flatter him, calling him a demoniac, now master, both out of an evil mind. No more self-contradictory words were ever spoken. This is why he rebukes them severely. Verse 38 opens with the scribes and Pharisees working together. Thus far in chapter 12, we've been Really, those that we encountered have primarily been the Pharisees themselves, not the Pharisees and the scribes. But it is not at all uncommon to find the scribes and Pharisees working together, particularly in going after their supposed enemy, Christ. Here, their confrontation takes the form of demanding a sign to prove that Jesus is, in fact, from God. Now, a 
Sign is another term for miracle or a work of wonder. By Peter, when he addressed the Jews in Jerusalem after Jesus' ascension to heaven, he used all three terms, a miracle, a wonder, and a sign to describe the acts of Christ, these miraculous works of Christ. In Acts 2.22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. So these scribes and Pharisees then come to Christ and say, Master, teacher, give us a sign. Now, if you've been studying with us through the Gospel of Matthew, even in just the chapter that we're currently in, you have to note the irony. What had Jesus just done? He had cast out demons. He had healed a man who was mute and who was blind and who was possessed by a demon with a word. The problem is not that they haven't observed a sign up to this point. The problem is their unbelief. They are coming as skeptics, looking to disprove, not to be convinced. As one commentator notes, Jesus, though, is no circus performer gratifying the appetite for wonders on the part of people who were not serious about spiritual things. Thinking back to previous sections, it's as if these scribes and Pharisees are saying, okay, fine, we'll, we'll agree to disagree on what's just transpired. We called you a demoniac. We called you in league with Satan. You said you're not. All right, all right, fine. Let's, let's just call it even. And why don't you give us a new sign? Really prove to us that it's a sign from God. We'll give you another chance. We want you to do another miracle that unmistakably demonstrates that you are working with God. It's really little wonder, considering this overall context and their previous rejection, their attempt to align Jesus with Satan, and their overall recalcitrance, that Jesus rebukes them sharply. They have showed no remorse. They have showed no regret. Certainly no repentance. And so what is the content then of this sharp rebuke? Well, first Jesus labels them as an evil and adulterous generation. Now, you don't have to do a lot of exegesis to realize that's not a good thing. And yet this isn't an off-the-cuff remark. Jesus is reaching into the annals, into all of the scrolls of the Old Testament, and bringing to bear the totality of the wickedness that existed in Israel from start to finish as constitu- when constituted as a nation. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, the first generation of Israel, that wilderness generation who was led out of Egypt, was from her very start in Deuteronomy called a wicked generation. Why was she labeled a wicked generation? Well, what had those people experienced? Sign after 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 they saw ten ten plagues fall on Egypt. They saw the Red Sea parted. They saw Pharaoh's army drowned. They saw water come from a rock. They saw the Lord provide manna from heaven, and yet that was never enough. There was never enough signs to convince them of who God was as a whole. And so they are labeled in Deuteronomy 135 
as a wicked and evil generation. Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give your fathers. And again at the end of Deuteronomy in 32, 5, and then in verse 20, they have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. And then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom there is no faithfulness. So that's the wicked side of this generation, but what of the adulterous side? Well, what was the reason for Israel and Judah's exile and destruction? The northern kingdom in 722 B.C., the southern kingdom and three deportations in the late 500s B.C.? It was Israel's idolatry and false worship. And do you remember how those were described? They were described as adultery or harlotry. The metaphor of adultery was applied consistently to that generation, the exiled generation who sought spiritual fulfillment in any source other than God, particularly in the idolatry of the surrounding nations. This phrase, evil and adulterous generation are like two bookends of the history of Israel. Summing up, similar to how we talk about Christ being the Alpha and the Omega, to speak about how he is all in all, here we have a bookend pointing specifically to all of the wickedness that exists in Israel's history, and you, scribes and Pharisees, epitomize it all. The prophets had said, Isaiah 121, how the faithful city has become a harlot, she who is full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Later in Isaiah 57, 3, even more harshly, but come here, you sons of sorcerers, sons of a sorceress, offspring of an adulterer and a prostitute. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 3, 6, Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree and was the harlot there. Most famously, we see the representation of adultery or harlotry through the prophet Hosea, who is told by God to take a wife of harlotry, who is repeatedly unfaithful to him as a sign of Israel's attitude toward God. So he says in Hosea 3.1, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods. Jesus is applying again to these Jewish leaders all the spiritual failures of Israel. These scribes and Pharisees are here held up as the epitome of Israel's spiritual unfaithfulness, her inability to be convinced by signs and wonders, and is now being personified in her religious leaders. Now, what's interesting to note, particularly with this, when you think about the adulterous generation, is you know what did not exist in Israel at the time of Christ, at least in no widespread way whatsoever? What had been rooted out? There were no idols up and around. No, they had created a very fastidious, legalistic form of worship to make sure that Christ, or not Christ, that, that God was worshipped, at least so they thought, in very particular ways. They had added rules upon rules upon rules to make sure that it took place. Over 600 of them. 
And yet, as we've seen through Jesus' earlier appeal, back in verse 7 of chapter 12 here, he appealed to Hosea, that very book that describes Israel's idolatry and harlotry and says, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea 6, 7, but like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. You see, what the prophets had always emphasized, what Jesus was looking to emphasize is that it's the heart that matters. Spiritual unfaithfulness can exist in the most fastidious religious system. It can be found in what outwardly looks to be the most righteous church. Because it's a matter of the heart. Just as the righteous seed of Israel, the promised Davidic king, reaches its ultimate and climatic expression through Jesus Christ, so Israel's spiritual failures reach their greatest expression through the rejection of Jesus Christ. And this wicked rejection is nowhere so prevalent as in her leaders. Their superficial worship of God, while their hearts were far from him, their spiritual unbelief, while they practice all of these religious exercises, they don't require physical idols. The creation of elaborate or legalistic rules to follow God is never a guarantee of spiritual faithfulness. As Calvin noted, man's nature is, so to speak, a perpetual factory of idols. In other words, whenever and wherever sinful people exist, the propensity for producing idols or spiritual unfaithfulness after our own making exists. It is something we have to continually fight against. We have to continually fight against this spiritual drift. It's like being on a river. When everything wants to sweep you downstream, the only way to keep that from happening is to continuously be fighting against it. The moment you stop, what happens? You begin drifting toward the waterfall. Well, Jesus tells these adulterous religious leaders that they will receive a sign. I will give you a sign. But the sign they will be given is a sign of condemnation. The sign they are given is the sign of Jonah, or that is, the sign which is Jonah. You likely know the story of Jonah. An Old Testament prophet sent to Gentiles unwillingly. Not just any Gentiles, Assyrians. Not just to any Assyrians, to the capital city where the wickedness of Assyria was manifest, to Nineveh. Well, he didn't like the mission with which he was entrusted, so he fled the opposite direction, jumped on a ship that was headed the other way. God sends a great storm against the ship. You remember the story. Sailors start throwing anything and everything they can overboard till there's nothing left except for people. And Jonah... Volunteers, He says, cast me over and you'll be saved. And he is. And the storm immediately ceases. But rather than drowning, what does God do? He sends a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah repents there in the belly of the fish. And after three days and three nights, he spat up on dry land and goes and preaches to Nineveh. What's interesting and what's important to note here, and really is the most significant part of this sign, is not the three days and three nights in the fish. 
It's that it was only three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. Just as it will only be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Well, what is Jesus saying? I will rise again. That's what's significant here is his prophecy and promise of the resurrection. Jesus is not emphasizing his death, though that's important, but here he is emphasizing his resurrection, and that will be the sign that after only three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, which is a reference to the grave, it's not a description of Sheol or the underworld here. In this context, it is simply the grave, but with an emphasis on only three days and three nights. And the resurrection after three days and three nights will be the sign. Jesus' promise of a sign is one of the clearest prophecies to his coming death and to his resurrection. And by the way, the religious leaders understood this reference. They got it. How do I know they got it? Because what did they do after he was buried and put in the grave? They said, please stick soldiers to guard that grave so nobody comes and steals the body. Now they weren't just worried about somebody looting the body. What were they worried about? them being able to claim that he had rose from the grave. That was their fear, that they, they might continue this, this narrative. They fully understood. But this sign that they've asked for, and really the answer to their request takes an even more ominous turn, at least as far as these religious leaders are concerned, because then we're told, and Jesus continues, because far beyond just giving them a sign, because it says, in light of this sign, the men of Nineveh are going to rise up with this generation at the judgment and condemn you. Now first, notice the language will rise up in judgment. It's an indication of future resurrection of the believer and the unbeliever at judgment. This here is some of the clearest evidence that there is no soul sleep or end to existence at death, but life continues forever. The soul continues forever. Death in this life is simply the door into eternity. This life is the preparation for where and how we will spend all eternity. And while the Jews certainly believed in a future life after death, what is interesting is that Jewish religious extra-biblical teaching and their belief was that it would be Israel who was the one standing in judgment, condemning all of the nations. And Jesus has completely turned that on its head. It will be Gentile Assyrians, Ninevites of all people, who will stand up and condemn these Israelites, specifically these religious leaders. This would have horrified those who were listening. Not only because Jesus was saying the religious leaders would be condemned, but it would be done by unclean, uncircumcised Gentiles. But you see, the Ninevites were a perfect contrast to these unbelieving Jewish leaders. You see, the Ninevites did not witness firsthand Jonah in the belly of the fish. It's certainly possible that Jonah told them about it. He probably smelled like it for the first couple days. He was there. It's even possible that the acid from the fish's belly had even whitened his skin so that there was visible proof that this had taken place. 
And yet, none of the Ninevites actually witnessed the swallowing and the spitting out of Jonah. So what were they given? What led to their repentance? You see, it wasn't a sign. It was preaching. It was the call to repentance, that's all. But it was enough. The wicked Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah without miracles and without signs. That's why they will stand in judgment. It didn't take a sign, you Jewish religious leaders, for the wicked Assyrian Ninevites who you have despised all of your life, for them to repent and believe. And yet here you are. You have witnessed sign after sign, after miracle, after miracle, after wonder, after wonder, and you still will not believe. And it's because of this that they will stand as a witness against you in judgment. Jesus concludes by saying something greater than Jonah is here. And we're going to return to the significance of that in a moment. But first, notice that Jesus doesn't stop his rebuke. As a good Jewish, in his court of law, he brings a second witness. There's going to be a second witness against you, Jewish leaders. And he introduces this other witness who will rise up against them at judgment. Following that pattern of two witnesses, Jesus offers a second, not only just a witness, but another Gentile witness who will stand against these unrepentant religious leaders at the judgment. The second example is of Gentile repentance. And in verse 42, we read of the queen of the south. The queen of the south is a reference to the queen of Sheba. Sheba was an area that likely encompassed portions of modern-day Yemen as well as Ethiopia. And at one time, it was a powerful and rich kingdom. In fact, there's several historical references to this powerful kingdom. Now, what is interesting, just in... Jesus' choice of these two Gentile witnesses, the Ninevites and the Queen of the South, is that in extra-biblical Jewish literature, the Ninevites and the Queen of the South were specifically symbols of wickedness. Jesus is taking their extra-biblical writings and turning them against them, showing them how severely they have misunderstood. They had believed this despite the fact that the biblical text states that the Ninevites believed in God. Jesus uses the word repented. And the Queen of Sheba, upon her visit, confesses that she now believed what she had heard about the wisdom that God gave Solomon. And she's even recorded as praising Yahweh, the God of Israel, in 1 Kings 10. If they just looked more carefully at the Old Testament without those discriminatory eyes towards the Gentiles, they would have had strong reason to believe that the Ninevites at the time of Jonah and the Queen of Sheba experienced saving faith in the God of Israel. And Jesus makes it clear that they will stand over and against unbelieving Israelites in judgment. But why is the Queen of Sheba such a fitting witness at the judgment? Of all the possible witnesses he could have brought, Throughout all the history of the world, why the Queen of Sheba? Because the Queen of Sheba came to test Solomon with hard questions. Somewhat similar to what the religious leaders have been doing. But there's an important difference. She came truly desiring to know. Spiritually sensitive. Ready to receive. 
She exemplifies the right attitude in asking questions. She wanted to believe. She wanted to be convinced. Like the Bereans in Acts who eagerly sought the scripture, wanting to believe everything that Paul said, but comparing it with scripture so that their belief would be firmly established. By contrast today, we have too many so-called Christian discernment ministries who exemplify the attitude of this wicked and adulterous religious leaders more than they do the Queen of Sheba and the Bereans to ask questions, to seek the truth so they might grow in faith. Instead, it's there to condemn, to attack, to undermine, to slander. And it's not just them, it's any of us. We have a tendency to be critical. We need to be careful with that, very careful. Not to develop the same critical and condemning spirit. We're to be careful and discerning, absolutely, but we must temper that with eagerness and excitement. With praise and rejoicing, we need to be very wary of the person who tries to throw a wet blanket on Scripture, on our rejoicing over spiritual things, over rejoicing over answered prayer, over you, know, you get excited about something and you know the person who says, well, yeah, but... You start to see something in scripture and say, well, yeah, but let's focus on what you got wrong here first. We need to be careful not to have that critical and condemning spirit. That was one of the great contrasts that existed between the Queen of Sheba and these religious leaders. And so she will stand in judgment against them because upon hearing the answers to the questions, she responded in repentance. Verse 42 ends like verse 41 with the refrain that something greater than Solomon is here. These two times are actually not the first time we've seen this refrain. Look over just a little to the left in verse 6 of chapter 12 of Matthew. And you see this, this refrain was used there as well where Jesus says something greater than the temple is here. And when you look at these three verses, these three refrains together, we see Jesus presented as greater than the temple, that is the priesthood. Jesus is likewise presented greater than the prophets, represented by Jonah, and in verse 42, greater than the wisest king who ever lived. Put another way, Jesus is at once the highest and greatest prophet, priest, and king who has ever lived. And brings each of these together in his person and in his ministry. All that Israel had hoped for in the prophets, in their priests, and in their kings is found in Jesus Christ. Now Jesus' conclusion to this section and this rebuke of these Pharisees and scribes is unique to say the least. It's probably not where I would have gone. He introduces a parable, a very brief parable concerning demons here to finalize his condemnation of this wicked generation. And while it's true that we do get a glimpse in verses 43 through 45 into the spirit realm, specifically demonic activity, Jesus' words are not attempting to provide a course on demonology. He's not trying to satisfy the curious by teaching about the inner workings of demonic possession. Rather, the emphasis here is on the need to be filled with good, very similar to what we looked at last week specifically the Holy Spirit. He is iterating that there is no neutral ground, as we discussed a few weeks ago, in matters of eternity and our spiritual lives. 
We must be earnest about filling the storehouses and treasury of our mind with good and with the word of God and with prayer. And here in these verses, we see that the danger of rejecting Christ is shown by the fact that the exorcism of a demon is not the same as salvation. Even if I were to exorcise another demon for you, scribes and Pharisees, cast them out, if there is no change of the inner person, it does nothing. It's actually worse than where we started. Even someone who had experienced an amazing sign, if he will not repent, if he remains spiritually empty, will encounter an even worse fate than he began with. He's continuing his rebuke on their request for signs and wonders. And Jesus returns to really what his, was the catalyst for this entire exchange, the casting out of a demon, back in verse 22. And he notes that it's not he, but it's they who are setting the people up for disaster. By rejecting the true spirit of God, the only one who should occupy the life of a person, they are preparing the people for an even worse spiritual state. It's not Jesus who is assisting Satan, but them. The simple truth of this parable is that if a demon is cast out of a person who is not then occupied by the spirit of God, then things are much worse than they were to begin with. And we see this same principle. We see it with regard to spiritual teaching and spiritual life. Peter notes those who have tasted the goodness of God but do not repent, that the last state has become worse for them than the first. You can turn there, 2 Peter 2, verse 20. I'm sorry, 2 Peter 2, 20. Peter writes, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... In other words, they start to look like Christians. They start to put off some of the evil because they recognize that they start to see and recognize some of this wickedness and this evilness. And they, they start to sweep up their lives, start to clean them up on the outside. They are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Returning to Matthew 12, if there is ever a passage warning against trying to morally clean someone up without the regeneration of the spirit, of trying to force persons to please God while inwardly there is no repentance or change of affections, this is it. To try and create peace persons or a society forced to live in every way according to God's moral standard without inward transformation, without ongoing sanctification, is to set them up for an even worse fall. This is why our primary focus must always be the spiritual well-being of a person, not outward conformity to some set of standards. It doesn't mean that we can live however we want. That's not the point. But it's an issue of priorities and significance. What comes first and what comes first must always be the heart, the inward being, 
This is the great danger of legalism. This is why theological systems like theonomy are so dangerous. They attempt to clean up the outside, maybe even sweeping up the inside a bit, but the spirit has not filled the space. As a result, the wickedness which follows is going to be worse than before, and the spiritual state of such persons will always be much worse. Trying to make persons live as Christians who have not experienced the transforming power of the gospel is to potentially wreak havoc on their spiritual life. You see, Israel had cleaned up her act, at least on the outside. She no longer was worshiping idols of the nations, and yet, as Jesus points out in this passage, the spirit of adultery is still rampant throughout Israel. It doesn't matter that you've cleaned up the idols, because your heart is still far from me, says God. And so the implication is obvious. It's not simply a matter of outward conformance to spiritual laws, but an inward transformation and worship from the heart that is necessary. And it's what God, through his prophets, has always taught. When we read a passage like this, all of these verses together, kind of looking at them, it's easy to want to just grab some popcorn, sit back and watch the show as Jesus condemns and just lays into these Pharisees and scribes. But we understand that the right response is to look at an interaction like this and ask, what does this reveal about my own tendencies? For some reason, and we know it's, our, it's the sinful nature the flesh, it is much more natural to want to create a list of rules and religious practices than it is to examine our own hearts and our own affections. We'd much rather wash our hands than do the heart surgery. What we need to be doing is asking ourselves questions like this when we encounter a text such as we've seen this morning. First, rightly ask, do I really love God? Do I really love his son, Jesus Christ? And hopefully the answer is yes. And so the second, the following, the subsequent question is, what does this look like in my life? If I love God, if I love Jesus Christ, what does this look like in my life? If someone were to follow me around for a day, would they be able to say, he loves the Lord? This is what James means when he says faith without works is dead. You see, real love bears fruit. We need to ask ourselves, where have I allowed my affections to drift? If you need help identifying this, simply look at where the majority of your time, your effort, and your resources are. And lastly, if you're here this morning and you realize you recognize you do not have that affection for God. You do not have that affection for Christ that compels you to want to serve him, to call him Lord. Perhaps you've grown up in an environment that emphasized right behavior, but you never stop to ask, do I really love Christ? This morning is the time to stop with the superficial performance and to turn to God and ask him to renew your spirit, to give you new affections and love, to repent of your sin, of your self-sufficient efforts, and to make, 
to take those burdens that you've been carrying, your efforts to earn your own salvation, to earn your good standing with God, and to place them on Christ as the only hope you have for salvation. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for the many truths that come to light in this text. We're thankful for your great love with which you've loved us, that you would send your son to live in our midst, to become our perfect sacrifice, to become our, the perfect prophet, priest, and king, to give us a hope, not only for this life, but for the life to come. Father, create within us a love for you. Convict us where we have let our affections dwindle, where we have that spiritual drift in our lives that we would turn to you with a whole heart, that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation. Father, I do pray if there are any here this morning who do not know you, that you would so burden their hearts, so burden their minds, that they cannot go another day without calling upon you as Lord. In your name, amen.